Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 18, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your holy word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would attend its reading and its preaching and its hearing today. Work in us by your Holy Spirit the change that, that you require of us. Wash us by the word, sanctify us, purify us, challenge us. And Father, may all the things that we say and hear and do today be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, I think you're pretty familiar and you've heard the term political correctness and, and to the point where it almost comes out your nose, depending on who you're talking to. Political correctness in the 1990s became a popular way of describing and, and criticizing, I think rightly criticizing, the, the social engineering that was going on at the time with language and the public discourse. Pu political correctness began as a way of sterilizing our language, removing words or phrases that, that initially we thought, well, that might offend someone or that might marginalize someone, but, but that quickly turned into an homogenation of not just words, but ideas. So, so it wasn't that we, we became oversensitive to words, but we came, became oversensitive to certain unsavory positions or, and eventually, people themselves became offensive. It, it, became, it began, if, if, we, if we use the judgment of charity, we could say, well, maybe it was an attempt at kindness, maybe it was an attempt at inclusivity, but it morphed into a new form of exclusivity and elitism. See, we who talk this way, we who are politically correct, we who avoid unsavory words, and we who avoid unsavory ideas, we're the really sensitive, evolved people. The, the rest of you are just unwashed, uneducated, unenlightened. And, that, and that's, the, that's the real sense you get from, from those who, who, who uh, buy into that and drink from this fountain of political correctness. But, but you don't hear so much lately about political correctness. It's, it's kind of continued to shift and change because... Uh, most notably, some of the positions that were politically correct 20 years ago are no longer. It, like, it's a moving target. The, the goalposts keep, keep moving of what is actually acceptable. And it's given, uh, political correctness has given birth to its ugly offspring known as uh, uh, virtue signaling. And, and I say even by using the word ugly offspring, that what could be more uh, politically incorrect, correct, right? The, the, the adorable little uh, different uh, offspring of, uh, of, of political correctness. I used this phrase virtue signaling a couple of weeks ago 
I used it to describe what the Pharisees were doing whenever they were around Jesus. And it comes up again in a big way in this week's text. Virtue signaling, I wanted to find this. Uh, it was uh, a phrase coined by an English columnist uh, about two years ago. Uh, and I think it's a brilliant phrase. Uh, virtue signaling describes the manner in which people say or write things to let everyone know how virtuous they are. Uh, and, and they are virtuous in the way that everyone would immediately recognize as mainstream, evolved, enlightened, uh, educated, elite virtue. So, so if you, for example, say, I hate that news source or I hate that political commentator, what you're really saying is, I am expecting you to admire me for how uh, non-racist or open-minded I am. I'm, I'm not like these other people who do this or that thing. And, and so to, to virtue signal by saying something you disdain or dislike or, or don't like, to, to say, see, you can trust me. You can put me in the category of the just and the upright. Um, but it really doesn't require any action whatsoever on your part to, to, to gain acclaim or praise. You really haven't earned your virtue by anything other than pointing out something that you hate. It's, it's low effort and it requires no sacrifice whatsoever, like, like putting one of those magnet, magnetic ribbons on your car or, or changing your Facebook profile picture to, to reference whatever the most recent global tragedy was. I mean, it's, it's low effort, but look at how sensitive I am. Look how connected and enlightened I am. Political correctness, on the one hand, it began as an active effort to avoid offense, to avoid insulting behavior. But virtue signaling is very different. It's this, it's this passive, coded attempt to demonstrate your own moral uprightness, your own good character by publicly pointing out things you dislike. And, and social media, quite honestly, is the fertile soil for this behavior. When people offer their condemnation of something they hear on the news or they, they get outraged about some story or they de demand federal action on something that, that, that gets them worked up, you have to wonder, do they really care about this thing or are they just crafting a persona? Is this, is this just another part of the, of, the, of the public image that they're trying to, to work on? Are, are they actively working on a solution to this problem that they care so deeply about? Or is the most important thing just looking like someone who cares? You see, there's a, there's a significant difference, right, between actually working on a solution and just looking like someone who cares about things. Um, are, they, are they making any sacrifices to fix things or are they just making a transparent bid for likes and follows and this aura of righteousness that follows you around people who express these same opinions? So, so their outrage is sort of like a moral Lysol that they just spray over their lives and, and you're supposed to, you know, masking the smell of the, of the stench of the ugliness and the guilt that they carry around in themselves. Now, lest I be guilty of virtue signaling about virtue signalers, right? <laughs> lest I be guilty of, of this, I, I have to say, while this is a tactic liberally employed by all manner of less leftists and social Marxists and, and all kinds of folks, while that's employed liberally by them, it is not absent 
whatsoever from the church. This is, not, this is not alien to the people of God, to Christians. In fact, we probably have it down to a science. Anytime we locate our righteousness, our purity, our uprightness, anytime we locate our source of salvation in anything other than Jesus Christ, we are guilty of this very same behavior. And, and you hear this kind of thing. Well, and, and it's this um, moral posturing. Now, now there's, let me, before I say this, say there is a genuine reason and an upright and holy reason not to do things, not to watch things, not to listen to things. But there's also this kind of moral posturing that, that Christians are so prone to that say, oh, we don't do that. We don't let our kids watch that. We don't go to those places. We don't listen to that. And I'm saying this not because I'm really convicted or, or seeking righteousness. I just want you to see how holy I am. I want you to know how disciplined I am. I'm, I'm not avoiding these things out of gratitude for the grace I've been shown. I'm just letting you know about this because I'm crafting a public image. And actually, I'm trying to wallpaper over some heinous sins I hope you never find out about. You know, it's like, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Watch this thing over here. I'm distracting you. And Jesus roots out this attitude in this morning's text. It's, it's not simply uh, for the, uh, you know, the, the, the left wing kind of crowd. That's not the people who do this. We do this. And I think we even see the most conservative of the conservatives, the Pharisaical party in Jesus's day does this. In fact, Luke in, in chapter 18 he swaps between images of humility, poverty of spirit on the one hand, and then self-righteousness and arrogance on the other hand. And so as we walk through this text today, we'll see humility and poverty of spirit. And then we'll see an example of arrogance and self-righteousness. And we'll keep moving between the two. We get this parable about a helpless widow. And then we see a prayer of a prideful Pharisee. And then we have little children brought to Jesus. And then, and then we have the self-confident, rich, young ruler walking away. Jesus, Jesus is, is picking up speed as he gets closer to Jerusalem. And Luke is packing in all of this information here. It comes at really breakneck speed because once we get into Jerusalem, uh, the train leaves the station. The, 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 the dominoes start falling as we get through the uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That's all packed into just the next handful of chapters. And that's where, we're, that's where we're headed in the very next chapter, 19, is when Jesus gets into Jerusalem. So we can't cover everything in deep detail. Um, I want to spend most of our time this morning on these first two little parts and then read straight through the rest of the chapter. So let's get to it. We begin with a parable that Jesus delivers, and he delivers this parable. He starts off, I'm concerned, Jesus says, that you do not lose heart. With everything that's about to come at his disciples and all of the confusion and all the mystery that surrounds God's purposes as they're worked out in the world, Jesus says, I don't want you to be dismayed. I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want your hearts to fail. I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to walk away. I want you to fight. I want you to wrestle. I want you to press into the mystery. Ask for answers. Pray for blessing and deliverance. Be tenacious. Be like a, like a bulldog who grabs hold and doesn't let go. And so then he tells a story about a woman just like that. He starts off. There was a judge. 
who didn't fear God and certainly wasn't concerned about anybody else. You've known men like this, right? They don't care what God thinks, and if they don't care what God thinks, they certainly don't care what you think. They've achieved a position or a rank in life where they feel like they can get away with anything, and, and they don't have to treat anybody with respect. So that's the judge in the parable. Then there is a widow in this judge's city who is being exploited or abused. She, uh, someone is behaving toward her in an unjust way. There's some injustice in the way that someone is, is treating her. And as we would assume, a widow does not have any est station. She doesn't have any authority. She doesn't have any resources. She's not operating from a position of strength, but of weakness. And so this judge who doesn't care about God or anybody, he doesn't have to, he doesn't, he doesn't owe her any favors. He doesn't have to do anything for her. But she comes to the judge and she keeps pestering him for justice. She keeps asking him for defense. She says, stop, judge, and look at what this person is doing to me. Please do something about this. Can't you see what they're doing to me? Please, will you listen to me? Will you listen to me? Will you hear my case? Judge, help me. Judge, deliver me. Judge, stand up for justice. Well, she keeps coming and coming and coming, and the judge gets to the point where he says, look, I don't have to do this, but she's wearing me out by her constant coming to me, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to avenge her. And that's the parable. Now, Jesus says, your God is not an unjust, uncaring judge. But, but, but if a man like that will avenge a widow, how much more God will, will avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? The unjust judge delayed responding because he was calloused, he was indifferent. But, but if God, our righteous judge, delays exercising judgment, it's, it's often out of compassion on unbelieving men, giving them opportunity to turn and repent. The, the unjust judge just he just doesn't like aggravation that's why he responds but our righteous judge absorbs all kinds of aggravation he absorbs pain and he absorbs uh, absorbs offense and and suffering in order to save fallen man so so jesus is showing us this picture and saying okay that's how a, a wicked man acts how much more do you think your righteous god will act god is not an unjust judge that's the first thing and on top of that we are not widows. We are not powerless. We are not exactly like her. We have a husband to speak up for us. We have our mighty bridegroom, Jesus. And Jesus says, he calls us his elect in this. He, he says, How shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night? We are his own. We are his chosen ones. We are his treasure. So the unjust judge delivered justice, but delivered it reluctantly. The righteous judge of all the earth, God our Father, will bring about judgment speedily and decisively. Whenever he says, time's up, time's up, and he's rolling out his plan. Now, now how does God decide when time's up? When, when does God decide to act and answer? Well, he has his own decrees, he has his own purposes, but one of his purposes and one of the things he uses are the prayers of his people. He has responded, God has, 
has, has promised to respond to the prayers of his people. And so his people must be praying continually, wrestling like Jacob wrestled with the angel. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Like the Syrophoenician woman who kept after Jesus and said, you know, bless me, heal my daughter. And Jesus says, well, I'm not too sure about this. And she says, well, even the, even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. She kept pursuing and Jesus loved it. He loved this, this pursuit. This is, what, this is what Jesus is calling for. This is what he's encouraging, this kind of continual, uh, uh, fervent, persistent, tenacious prayer that will not let go. Contrast that with this, this hologram of morality that we attempt to project through social media or t-shirts or bumper stickers or slogans. Or, or He hasn't promised to deliver us through these false displays of piety. He's, there's no spiritual power in any of that. But what he does want, he does want, and he calls for persistent prayer, singing and praying the Psalms, like Psalm 83. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. So often when you're reading through the Psalms, it's like the psalmist is saying, God, don't you see what's going on? Can't you, can't you see this? Look, look down from heaven and see what's going on. How long are you going to let this go on, God? And that's what, that's what the Psalms do, and that's what the widow does in her prayer to the unjust judge. Do something about this. And this is the kind of prayer that God hears, and this is the kind of prayer that he listens to and answers, and this is how he changes the world. When his people say, do something about this, end abortion in this country and in the world. Put a stop to this industry. Judge the industry of death. Crush it. Wipe it off the earth. Stop the spread of Islam. Stop the spread of all idolatry and turn these people's hearts to Jesus. Deliver your people from oppressors and tyrants. You see, when we pray this way and we keep praying this way, God has promised to change the world. He expects to hear our continual prayer. He wants to hear it, and we're not pestering him. Pray like this, he says, and I will avenge you speedily. Well, Jesus moves from this parable to another parable in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the context of this, this next parable. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they despised others. So he starts. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is targeting those who trust in themselves, he says, trust in themselves, and in their self-trust despise others. High degree of pride, high degree of self-worth, self-confidence, and contempt for everyone else who doesn't value them as much as they value themselves. 
When this comes out in the Pharisee's prayer, he says, he starts from a position of trust in himself and contempt for everyone else. He says, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. Listen to that. I thank you that I am not like these other men. What kind of prayer is that? <laughs> is, is that? Is that a prayer? Where are you locating your righteousness? In God's grace to you or in yourself? In comparing himself to other men, he feels like he can come away looking pretty good. But that's not our comparison. That's not our measuring stick. We don't, if, you, if you want to find some really rotten people, you don't have to look very far. You can probably find people that, that you feel superior to pretty easy. Just, just hang around me for a while. I feel pretty superior in, in short order, pretty quick. Uh, that's, that's not hard. But other people are not our measuring stick. We aren't judged against each other. God doesn't look at humanity and take the top 10% to heaven. That's not how it works. We're judged against God's law. We're judged against his standard of righteousness. And this man comes to temple to pray without any sense of his own lack, without, without any sense of his own unholiness or God's holiness. Now this Pharisee has fooled himself into thinking that he somehow pleased God by going above and beyond. He says, I fast twice a week. How many times a week did God's law require men to fast? Not, not twice a week, once a year. There was one fast a year on the Day of Atonement. That was it. That's all God required in the law. But look how righteous I am. I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything that I possess. Well, God's law requires you to, to tithe on your income, on your increase, on your, on your harvest. But we know that the Pharisees like to boast about how they, they tithe out of their spice rack, out of their mint, anise, and cumin. And so this man says, I, I tithe on everything that, that I have. Um, so he's boasting. He doesn't ask for anything because he doesn't think that he lacks anything. <laughs> when he comes to prayer, there's not a petition here. He doesn't come asking for something. He just comes to humble brag. He just comes to show how great he is. He loves himself, but he's lacking in real gratitude toward God. And he has no thankfulness for other men, just contempt. It's almost like in coming to pray, it's like he's congratulating God on what a fine servant he has. Uh, he's just glancing at God and then complimenting himself. And after the opening word of prayer, he doesn't mention God again. He just addresses the prayer toward God and then doesn't bring up God's name again. So here we see in this prayer that uh, virtue signaling is not new at all. It's actually pretty old. It's pretty ancient. All he has to do, all he has to do is say who he abhors, what he doesn't approve of, without actually having to relieve anybody's burdens, without actually ever knowing or engaging any extortioners or adulterers or tax collectors. Other, other than to sneer at them, that's, that's all he owes them is contempt, disgust. By the way, is the tax collector in earshot when he prays this prayer? He says this. He says extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I'm assuming that he's not praying silently to himself. I'm assuming that he's praying vocally, verbally, openly, and, and, and even insulting this other worshiper as he, as he prays. See, all you have to do to be seen as righteous is just to let everybody else know what you hold in contempt. You don't have to actually have to do anything. 
Or if you do something, you just do those things that come easy for you, that are public enough for everyone to congratulate you. See, what he does is not actually something for God. This, this I fast twice a week, I, I tithe on everything. Who's, whose burdens is he relieving with this? Well, what's he building with these things that he is so proud of? No, he's just looking for praise and acclaim for himself. The tax collector is just the opposite. The tax collector in this parable, he stands apart. His only audience is God. He doesn't even look up to heaven. He knows he's a sinner. That's what he calls himself. I'm a sinner. And he's genuinely repentant. He offers nothing to God other than repentance. He asks mercy and forgiveness for his sins. Jesus says, so look, everybody who exalts himself will be humbled. Everybody who humbles himself is exalted. The way up is down. The, the way to glory is to start on your knees. That's the only way. That's, that's the way it works. Well, we've seen this before, where, where Jesus will teach something, and then the events that follow it underscore and illustrate exactly what he just taught. And we're about to see this happen again. Again, we've got this uh, parable of humility and lowliness of spirit, and then we've got this parable about arrogance. And now what we're going to see is an illustration a public illustration, the events that follow, we're going to see humility and then self-righteousness and what happens next. So pick it up with verse 15. Then they brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus called to them and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I've often thought that if Jesus didn't want children included in the new covenant, if, if, um, if Jesus wanted to be sure that we understood, yeah, children were part of the old covenant, that was part of the old world, but in the new covenant, this really isn't for kids. We're going to wait to see that they can figure things out on their own. We're going to make sure that they really understand what's going on. We're going to make sure there's this clarity and this, this ability to articulate things. And, and until they can articulate their faith, we're going to keep them at arm's length until they're old enough. Um, and, and, if, and if Jesus really wanted to, to underscore that, and if Jesus wanted to teach that, what better place than right here? What better place than when people are bringing their children to Jesus? Now, why are they bringing them to Jesus? Why are they bringing their children? They want Jesus to touch their children, to bless them. And, and the disciples, thinking like we do sometimes, the disciples say, what's the point of that? These kids don't know what's going on. Leave Jesus alone. The, the babies don't have any idea what's, what's happening here. They don't have faith. Plus, these these these. These parents are pestering Jesus. Oh, wait, Jesus just told us a parable about widows who, who pestered a judge. If, if Jesus wanted to say, and here's the point, if Jesus wanted to say, well, you guys are right, the new covenant is only for adults. I know the old covenant included children, but this thing's different. If he wanted to teach that, now's the time. Now is the time to underscore that. But Jesus doesn't rebuke the parents for misunderstanding. Who does he rebuke? He rebukes the disciples for keeping them away from Jesus. That's what he does. And so he says, let the children come to me. This, Jesus says, this is exactly the kind of faith I'm looking for. Child faith, infant faith. In fact, Jesus says, if you don't share their kind of faith, if you don't have this childlike, complete, utter dependence and trust in me, you have no part of me. You don't, you, you don't belong in my kingdom. You, you don't have, uh, you're not entering my kingdom. 
And then to contrast these children, here comes the rich young ruler in verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Here comes a man to Jesus so confident. You have to wonder if he's trying to impress Jesus with his piety. He's so different from these other sinners that Jesus has been dealing with. He's, he's got a clean moral record. He's kept all the most popular commandments, all the big hits. And, and he asked Jesus, honestly, maybe even genuinely, he asked this question. So what do I need to do to enter this new age? What do I need to do to inherit the life of the new world? So Jesus has a test for this man. He says, well, how wedded are you to the things of the old age, to the riches of the old world? Are, the, are your riches like an idol? Are they like an anchor that keeps you from embracing me fully? So if they are, show me that. Sell everything that you have. Come and follow me and you'll have more riches and treasure than you have right now. You'll have more riches and treasure in the age to come. See, the man, the rich young ruler asks what he could do and Jesus says, okay, you want to do something? Here's what you can do. He wanted something to do, and yet when he heard it, he couldn't comply. He, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't argue. He just becomes sad. Why, why is he so sad? Because he just can't depart with his stuff. He can't lose his position and affluence and lifestyle. He can't lose his comforts. He can't give them up. He can't drop it. So Jesus says, I, I know it's hard. I get it. How difficult is it for rich men to enter into the kingdom of God? Remember, we saw this just a couple of weeks ago, how easy it is to allow your riches to become a, an insulation around you, to become your comfort and your salvation. And so Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There are many who've tried to overanalyze that statement, and dissect it, and try to um, make it say something that, you know, maybe super uh, mysterious, but, but Jesus is just using, a, he's just using a humorous image to illustrate how difficult it is. Of course it's impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle uh, uh, ordinarily, right? Unless there's a blender involved, I guess. I don't know. Uh, the, I don't know what other way to get it through. Uh, of course it's impossible, but, but Jesus says God uh, has, has no limits. With God, all things are possible. So Peter looks for validation here. He says, well, Jesus, we've left everything behind and we followed you. And Jesus assures him and he says, everything you left behind in this age, everything will be restored to you many times over in the age to come. 
Now they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them what they're about to face when they get there. Verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. The disciples only get confused when he talks like this. It's like he's talking in riddles, they think. Maybe he's speaking in mystery. They can't quite figure it out. They, they know that what he's headed for is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. All of this tension with the Pharisees and the rulers and the lawyers, it's all going to come, come to a head. But they still can't see how God's purposes are going to be worked out. And the kingdom is going to come through the suffering and the rejection of Jesus. And, and all these words he's using, he's going to be spit upon. He's going to be mocked. This is not, this is not what they're ready for. It's not what they're looking for. But they can't, they can't comprehend how, how Jesus is going to embody all of this instruction on humility and submission and obedience that, that he's been delivering this whole way. The apostles are in the dark. They can't see what's going on. Nobody who's watching really understands how this all fits together. So it's appropriate that with everybody in the dark that we end this chapter with the 13th and final healing of, of the Gospel of Luke. The 13th and final healing is the restoration of sight to a blind man. Because everybody's blind. Everybody is in the dark. But we're all about to see. We're about to see God's purposes being worked out when he gets to Jerusalem. As Jesus gets into the city, everything becomes crystal clear. So it's almost like this, this blind man is the first who's going to get it. Verse 35. And then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So wherever Jesus goes, there's this entourage, apostles, disciples, critics, spectators, those people looking for a miracle, those people looking for a blessing, those who just want to see what's going on. There's this entourage, and as they pass by Jericho, there's a blind man who hears the ruckus. He asks, what's going on? Someone tells him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. And so this blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Some of, some of the members of the traveling party with Jesus, they tell him to be quiet. Again, just like they held the, the mothers bringing their babies at arm's length and said, don't bother Jesus. They tell this blind man, be quiet, don't bother Jesus. Um, who made them gatekeepers? Who put them in charge of, you know, keeping Jesus away from aggravation, first of all? And did they not just hear the parable of the persistent widow, that this is the kind of faith that God is looking for, that Jesus expects? They try to, they try to quiet him down. They say, don't bother him. But their discouragement doesn't affect the blind man. He just gets louder, which God bless him. He just, he just says, I'm not listening to you. Uh, he gets louder and longer. He says, have mercy on me. So Jesus stops and he has the man brought before him. And Jesus says, now pay close attention to this. Jesus says, what do you want me 
to do for you. This is such a contrast to what we've seen so far. The Pharisee praying in the temple, the Pharisee, he boasts about what he had done for God. The rich young ruler wanted to do something for Jesus. The, the blind man, see, the rich young ruler said, what can I do? What can I do? The blind man, he just cries out for mercy. And then it's Jesus who asks him, what do you want me to do for you? How different would have the, the rich young ruler's story had gone if he had just come to Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What would have happened? What would, ask him, what would happen if Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I think this is so significant because when we look at our messes that we've often created, but sometimes the messes we get in, when we look at our challenges, we look at our difficulties, our besetting sins, our conflicts in prayer and in frustration, we say, God, what am I supposed to do? What did I do wrong? Look, God, at everything I did right. And you haven't rewarded me for any of that. You're supposed to reward me for what I did right. And, and now this, I, I get this. What am I supposed to do? Instead of praying that way, we might pray first. Maybe there are things to do, but maybe the first prayer ought to be, have mercy on me. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to ask. Sometimes we look for the formula or the right thing to do. Just tell me what to do. Let me know what I need to do. When sometimes what we need to do is pour ourselves out. We need to empty ourselves and say, I can't do anything. I can't do anything right. I can't do anything just. I can't do anything on my own strength. I need your mercy. And see what God does with that. This man throws himself on Jesus's mercy and he says, please let me receive my sight. He doesn't say, now, now what can I do to earn it? He just says, let me receive it. And Jesus says, yeah, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. The blind man worships, all the people worship, and God gets the glory because he kept calling out just like the widow in the parable and Jesus answered his call. This is the kind of faith Jesus is looking for, the kind of faith that freely and openly admits our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own limitations, our own sins, our own infirmities. We uncover that all before God. We spread it all out and we say, this is who I am. This is what I am. I admit it. I own it. This, this is me. Lord, have mercy on all of this. Like the widow, like the tax collector, helpless as children, as dependent as the blind man, we bring all of our fears and our anxieties and our insecurities to him in worship and prayer. And we say, I can't do anything about this, but you can. And I'm actually really worn out. I'm really tired of trying to do something with all this, but, but you can, Lord, have mercy on me. Instead, I'm afraid we're not well-practiced in that, but we are well-practiced in attempting to cover up our insecurities, to, to wallpaper over our weaknesses. We, we want to project that we have everything together. And so we exaggerate, we misrepresent, we deflect, we project. Again, look over there at those sinners and fools. Ha ha, look at them. They don't have it figured out. Don't, don't look at me, look at them because we're deceitful and we're prideful to the point that we almost get ourselves to believe how upright we really are in comparison to the wicked. We almost fool ourselves that we're as righteous as we say we are, but deep down inside, you know, and I know it's not true. We're not holding it together. 
we are doing a terrible job at it. If the Pharisees were around today, there's no doubt in my mind that they would be the most active participants on social media. Every, you know, half your friends would be Pharisees on, on, on social media. They would be posting on Facebook, you know, here I am at the head of the table again, hashtag winning, you know, <laughs> taking, taking selfies of themselves in their new robes headed up to temple, you know. Uh, 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 taking Instagrams of their tithes of mint, amison, cumin, uh, tweeting things like totally craving some mutton. This third fast of the week is always the toughest. You know, just feel sorry for me. I'm sure they would do that, but they're not around, so we're around and we do it, right? That's what we do. What they missed and what we missed is that the life that God calls us to, the life that God calls you and me to, is not about crafting a certain persona or an image, online or in real life, uh, uh, cultivating this reputation of being outraged over whatever the world happens to be outraged at the moment, uh, uh, about at the moment. There's, there's a difference between looking righteous and being righteous. There's a difference between looking virtuous and being virtuous. And I'm almost convinced that the two things are at odds because very often what looks like virtue to the world is really just wickedness shrouded in falsehood and sentimentality. What virtue is to the world is just wickedness wallpapered over. And what disgusts the world, what makes the world sick, what makes the world enraged is what makes Jesus happy. And he said as much two chapters ago. Didn't you remember what I said? What did I want placarded and laminated on every refrigerator and cross stitch and on every bumper sticker? What did Jesus say? What is exalted among men is an abomination to God. What is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Never forget that the world is upside down. So what the world sees as virtuous is actually really disgusting. And what the world hates is actually probably pleasing to God. Virtue signaling does not relieve pain. It doesn't release people from burdens. It doesn't release people from oppression. It doesn't heal the sick. It doesn't clothe the naked. It doesn't feed the hungry. It's passive. It's weak. All it does is expose your insecurities. It exposes your fears. It really makes things worse, not better, because it trivializes real suffering and just turns it into a hashtag. If we are really virtuous the way that Jesus calls us to be, if we exercise the faith that he demonstrates for us here, we won't need to send signals to anybody, especially not God. <laughs> you can't fool him. You're not even going to come close. He already knows what's in your mind and in your mouth and in your heart. And his is the only approval that we need to seek. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we would continue to meditate on these things. Fill us with your spirit. Grow us. Continue to change us and shape us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us now continue, be, continue to worship our God by bringing to